We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have on the podcast today, Catherine Burblesing, who is the uh, head of school at Michaela Community School in Great Britain. And uh, if you have not heard of Michaela before, you definitely should. You can follow Catherine at Miss underscore Snuffy on uh, Twitter. And that is how I first heard of her. And I'm excited to talk with you today. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. But for those who don't know, could you describe briefly what Michaela School is and what it's all about? Because it's a little bit different than what the, the norm in education has been for the past few decades. Yeah, so we are a bit different and we get lots of visitors from all over the world, from the US as well as Canada and Australia and all over Europe, mainly teachers because they want to see what we do differently. I'd say in the main, it's our very high standards of discipline. We have silent corridors, for instance, and people think, oh, that's all a bit scary when actually it just means that inner city kids aren't 
bashing each other in the face and not throwing each other into the walls and so on. So that's a good thing in my book. And then um, we also prize knowledge. So we'd say that knowledge is our goal in the classroom as opposed to group work where children are teaching each other and the, the teacher is moving amongst them, keeping them on task and being more of a facilitator of learning. We see the teacher as someone who has a, who is a fountain of knowledge and the children then learn from the teacher who is leading the learning from the front and the desks are in rows facing the teacher. Now, 70 years ago, that would have been perfectly commonplace. Nowadays, it's considered to be quite controversial. Essentially, we're relatively old fashioned, although... What I'd say is a lot of the brain science nowadays, well, all of it, backs what we do. And it means that we are a kind of souped up version of what might have happened in 1950, for instance, where we use techniques that wouldn't have existed then, but we're still doing it in a more traditional way that was normal, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Well, and and beyond that, those those systems are in place, but then also you've had very good success on your national exams, and that's a, an important thing. I've said many times on this podcast that the way to get good scores on tests is actually quite simple, but it's hard work and it requires a very specific approach. And you're doing that and you're getting the kind of results that you want. And so why don't more people do things to get the kind of results that they're seeking? Sort of because of the way in which you just framed it, (laughs) which was you said, you know, I I, I mean, you didn't really mean this, but you said, you know, you want to get good results in the test. So why doesn't everybody want to get good results on tests? And, And that's because rightly, people are critical of this idea of just preparing children for tests. That seems a bit inhumane. And you also think, well, you know, there's more to life than just what's on a test. And absolutely there is. And so we're very keen on the whole child here. And we do family lunch where the children serve each other, where they discuss topics while eating at the same time so that they learn how to look at you in the eye while also cutting their food. Uh, we do appreciations where the children have to stand up and, and, and appreciate somebody publicly in front of 200 other children. And so there, there is the whole child that happens here. But with regard to tests, where I think people are mistaken, because I do believe in tests, is that they think that it's just about rote learning for a test. And it depends on what the test is like. If the test is well-structured and well-made, rote learning won't be enough. You know, if you have to write an essay about Macbeth's despair in in the Shakespeare play Macbeth, you can't do that just through rote learning. So it depends on the quality of the test and what they're asking you to do. What a test ought to do is it ought, you ought to be able to teach them this much stuff and then the test comes in and tests them on that. And because you don't know if they're going to test you on this or this or this or this or this, you end up teaching all of this. And where I think educators can sometimes uh, lose their way is that if they're not teaching them properly in the first place and using what I would call progressive methods where there's lots of group work and the teacher isn't learning, leading the learning and memory isn't part of your focus, not the whole focus, but part of your focus. If that isn't the case, then you teach them badly for three or four years and then, oh, the test is coming. So in order to get them through the test, at least, you you drill them loads in what they need to know and you teach to the test. And then you get them through and you go, oh, phew, that's it, it's done. When act, and you think, oh, but all that teaching to the test stuff is a load of nonsense. And it is, right? But had you taught them properly right from the start, you would have taught them the beauty of all sorts of you know, different subjects and so on, making up this whole. And then in the end, they get tested on a small part of it, but they've learned so much. 
that can often get lost in particular when we have league tables judging schools. And so what I mean by that, if a school is having to compete with another school for, to be up, you know, a certain place on the league table, and they know that they're only going to be tested on this much, well, then what's the point of teaching them all of this when, you know, their reputation, all that matters is how well their children do on this. And then what ends up happening, as I say, everybody then just teaches to the test. So I think it's that confusion and that the fact that it's quite a nuanced debate where people can end up just taking sides. Either you love testing or you hate testing. And if you hate testing, then you're a progressive that just loves children and wants them to, you know, look, look at each other in groups and teach each other and love each other and, and never, never feel the, the pressure of a test. Or you love tests, which means you're evil and you hate children and you only just want to teach the test and that's it. And obviously, there is so much in between. And, um, and, and I think people just sadly just don't see the in between. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. And I so while I disagree with your some things about how you're running, Michaela, I totally agree with other things like what you just said about that idea of it, there is something between those two extremes. And while I'm not a big fan of testing, I know that it serves a purpose. And if I want to do well, so like if I'm in, uh, like when I was first an administrator and when I was a teacher, I was in inner city school and we needed to show improvement on those test scores so that our students would be able to progress um, and so that we would be able to maintain additional funding to support them. You know, that was that we recognize that that's what we really needed in a in a different environment, you know, where the kids were going to do well on those tests no matter what because they had families that supported them and knew what quote unquote education was and knew why they needed to do well on tests and push them to do well on the tests even if they didn't really care about it that much, then that part of it was not as necessary and and that's totally fine. So so I think that one of the aspects of this is is in the book Michaela the Power of Culture one of the sections talks about cutting out all the crap and ensuring that everything that the teacher does has a higher value for the children than the output from the teacher. And this is an area where I really agree with you and think that if a teacher so, for example, my first year teaching, I took home tons of grading and did a ton of stuff and was working all night long and throughout the weekend. And and it was just a waste of time because when I gave the feedback back to the students, they looked at it and just threw it in the trash. And so I stopped giving feedback on paper because the kids never cared about it. So my output was huge. But the value to the students was minuscule, if it was even noticed at all. And so I changed that and started giving feedback to them directly. And that changed things because that feedback they actually heard and listened to. So can you talk a little bit about some of those things that you do to ensure that you're not wasting teachers' time on things that don't have any value? Yeah. So what you just said, for instance, I think all teachers, when you think about it, kids tend to make the same kinds of mistakes. There's a bit of a myth around which says that all these children are so different in terms of how they learn. Now, children are different. They have different personalities and they do, some feel comfortable, you know, being shy. Others feel comfortable being, you know, an extrovert. They do have different personalities, but in terms of learning, they all tend to learn in the same way. It's the subjects that differ. So, you know, you wouldn't learn uh, history kinesthetically 
when you're learning history, it's best for the teacher to teach you, have a class discussion, maybe do some writing. When you're learning football, however, you wouldn't sit in a classroom to learn the football. You want to learn your football kinesthetically. You want to be out on the field actually doing it. Whereas you don't want to dress up in historical garb to learn history. And I think the mistake is that we've pre- we've presumed that these differences that are actually about subjects apply to the child and that the child learns in different ways. I'm a kinesthetic learner, or I'm an oral learner, and so on. When actually, no, we all learn in very similar ways. And we also all learn... Uh, make similar mistakes. So rather than have this whole idea of personalized learning, uh, which is just a mistake, I think, and is a great way of creating tons of work for the teacher that makes very little difference to the children, you need to teach them all in a similar kind of way. And I say all, uh, ability does change things. So your top set, you might move much faster with. Uh, Your bottom set, you need to do a lot of repetition with and a lot of drill with um, and a lot of testing for understanding. But you will, you'll just still do that with the top set, just not as much. But when you're giving feedback, rather than spending ages writing in the book what you did well, even better if, all this sort of stuff, don't do it, you know? Just write down all the mistakes that you're seeing them make when you look at their books. And you don't even have to write in the books at all. You just look at the mistakes they're making and then go to the front of the class and feedback from the front of the class. And everybody will go, oh. And then the other thing that that does is it forces the child to engage with what you've written or what you're thinking, actually, because you haven't written it down. The problem with writing stuff is the kids look at it once, boom, they close the book, that's it. Or often they just look at the mark and they close it. They don't even read your comment. And there you've spent the whole weekend marking books, writing out these long comments, and nobody even reads them. And if they do read them, they don't take any notice. Whereas if you're feeding back from the front of the class, the kids are forced to engage with the feedback. And um, it saves you an enormous amount of time. So that's one way. Other ways, just um, behavior, for instance. If senior management do a good job of um, keeping the behavior standards high, then teachers don't have to spend all their time chasing naughty behavior. The kids turn up, they learn, they go. Another set come in, they learn, they go. So that's huge. Another thing is our resources, we pull them. So each teacher isn't inventing what he's about to teach just before he teaches it. Uh, the teachers work as a team, and then they share out their resources amongst each other so that they're all sharing their stuff. And, and when you're working on something, you're working on it for the department to use, not just for you to use. And you're doing it way in advance, maybe a term in advance of when, when it would be required, not the night before you're staying up, making a PowerPoint at the last minute, you know, making a worksheet. Then the next morning you put it in the photocopier and it doesn't work, you know, and then you're rushing to the other photocopier, you're trying to get it photocopied. You know, that, that doesn't tend to happen here. So that's one way. So let me talk about that piece for a minute, Catherine. How how do you plan so far in advance? I mean, we all plan as educators in advance, but then, you know, we get bogged down with this other stuff. Usually that's what happens. And so how do you ensure that you're planning term in advance instead of just the week before or whatever? How do, how do you make that happen at your school? Yeah, well, I try and make sure that everybody has time to do that. So, I mean... I'm quite creative about how we use our money. So support staff, which we most schools would have here, we don't have any support staff. I spend that money on having more teachers here. So it means my teachers don't necessarily have to teach as much. I also, the behavior thing allows them more time because they're not then chasing behavior. So you say they get bogged down with all this other stuff. There's less of that stuff. I also tend to turn down teachers when they want to do extra stuff that might be great for five kids. But I'm always valuing, I'm always thinking, what's the effort impact ratio? There's always nice ideas, right? So everybody has nice ideas. Oh, let's do a bake sale. Oh, let's do, you know, 
uh, a gym outside. I don't know, a number of different things. And the effort might be this much. So you have that much effort. Well, how nice is it? What's the impact? Well, the impact's good. Well, if the impact isn't outweighing the work massively, (laughs) then I'll say no. So, and I say no to a number of things. I think a number of leaders find it difficult to say no, especially if, if a teacher's offering. Well, why not? You say yes. But I'll say no, because I'll think, yeah, but if I say yes, then you won't have time to do other things that I'd rather you did. So I'm going to say no to that. And also, if I say yes to you on your whim for that, so often I've found in my career, there's a deputy principal who has a nice idea and he starts asking all the heads of department, middle management for data. Give me this bit of data and analyze this for me and send me this. So you're, they're running around doing all that other stuff, as you say, for the deputy head. Why? Because he has some whim and next minute he's put some, something up in the staff room with, with pieces of yarn that show the trajectory of some students or something rather. And everybody says, oh, doesn't it look nice? And then what? What's it going to do? You know, my thing is always, why are we doing this? You know, and I'm constantly asking why, why? And if it, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't work, then I abolish it quickly. Yeah, I, I think that that's really good advice because we often think that because there's an idea or because there's something to do that we must do it. And, and especially with those things that you mentioned of, you know, somebody having an idea and then getting everybody to scurry around and do all this extra work. I have felt in most of my district positions where my assistant superintendent or somebody who was over me and over a bunch of schools, they would ask us to do things that had absolutely no value. And it was completely pointless for us to do those, but we would spend a bunch of time doing it uh, so that they could, you know, make some other decision that didn't relate to what we were, what we were doing. And, you know, what I eventually did towards, towards the end of being a principal is I just stopped doing those things and waited for the shoe to drop. And if, and what I, what I said, and what I've said many times on here is the district needs to ask me two or three times before I will do anything, because typically it's a whim, like you said, where they, they say, get this together. And then if you don't get it together, it really wasn't that important and they don't miss it and you can move on with your life. And it's difficult for us as educators, as rule followers to feel comfortable with that. And yet that's how you run things. And so how do you, how do you help your rule follower teachers be comfortable with not doing all these extraneous things that somebody might ask them to do on a whim? I don't let them. <laughs> it's very simple. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. they'll come and say, can I do this? I say, no. <laughs> I mean, look, I tell them why, I explain, they all get it, and they go, yeah, all right. Uh, you know, the key thing is you need to have a vision for your school, and everybody needs to buy into your vision. So they all know what we're trying. Everybody here is bought into the same vision, which is transforming the lives of these inner city kids. And I'll then explain to them why their particular idea isn't going to work, you know, and then they'll say, okay, you know, they get it. Uh, as long as you explain yourself. I think I think you'll find most staff um they just want to be heard, you know? And then they want to know why you don't like their idea. I really I I seek out the ideas of staff all of the time. What I'm always saying to them is uh I'm always saying, look, I'm not on the ground, I'm not in the lessons, I'm not in the corridors. I mean I am sometimes, but far more rarely. They're there all the time. So I said I depend on you come and tell me if something's wrong and then to give me some solutions. And maybe you don't know the solutions, fine. Maybe you just tell me what's wrong. But I, I also have a kind of whole reward like chart system where people get stars if they um, tell me what's wrong with the school, even if I disagree with them. <laughs> I'll say, 
okay, I don't think that's right. This is why, but here's a star anyway, you know, because uh, I, I mean, I try and bribe them with, I have all these chocolate biscuits there for, for staff. I'm always saying chocolate biscuits, chocolate biscuits, come and get some, you know, because I need them to come in and tell me what's going on. Otherwise I don't know what's going on, you know? So uh, it's really important to have that two-way dialogue. And then it's important for you as a principal, not to be scared to explain your reasons for why it is you want to reject something. And most staff will understand if you explain it properly. You just need to know why you're doing it. I think too often in schools, we do things because that's the way it's always been done. And we don't even know why we're doing them. And I think what's important is to always question, well, why have we decided to do this? Is that the best way to do it? If somebody comes and tells you, so I have a brand new member of staff who um, recently um, said to me, asked me a question about why we do something. And he was very polite about it. He just asked why. And I thought about it and I thought, that's a good point. Why do we do it? So I went to my senior team the next day and I said, why do we do this? And they said, da, 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 da. and I said, oh, that's not very good. That's not a very robust answer for me. So I pushed back with what I imagine he might have said. And they said, yeah, but da, da, da. And I said, mm, I don't know. And then they said, yeah, it's true. It's true. And I said, right, we're changing it. This is a brand new member of staff. Now, he still doesn't know it because we don't have our training with staff until, until Wednesday. But I will get up and I'll say, thanks very much to him. He has changed what we're doing at the school, you know. And um, that happens all the time. You know, it happens all the time. Uh, so you've got to be open to changing. But if you don't want to change it, because actually that person's suggestion isn't the best idea, you've got to be able to explain why and well so that you persuade the person who's told you it. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important. You can't just, you can't say this is how we do it because we've always done it and we're not going to change because we just don't want to change. But, you know, one experience from, from when I was a principal was we had this, this thing that we did um, every year and it was like this big to do and we spent all this time and energy on it. And I, and it didn't look like anybody was really loving it. Like it was a thing we did, but it wasn't, it wasn't moving anybody. It wasn't doing anything great. And so I said, so what if we don't do this anymore? And they said, well, we have to, this is, you know, a tradition. We have to keep doing it. And I said, I know, but what value do we get from it? What do we, why do we do all this work to make this happen? And nobody could say what it was. And I said, okay, well, we'll not do it this year because one, nobody told me about it until a couple of weeks before it started and nobody had done the work for it. I said, we're just not going to do it and see what happens. We didn't do it. Not a soul said anything about it except for the secretary who that had been her thing that she'd done for so many years. So she was offended and hurt that we didn't do this thing that was a big deal, but nobody else knew about it. Nobody else cared about it. Nobody else talked about it. We didn't get a single call from the community saying, why didn't you do this thing? And it was really fascinating to see that something that was that took a tremendous amount of work was not missed at all when we didn't do it. And, and she couldn't explain why we did it. And so we just didn't do it. There are other things, you know, at my last school, there was this big wrestling tournament that we did every year and had been going on for like 40 years. And I said, well, why don't, why are we still doing this? And they said, because it brings the community together. It brings revenue to our school. It is a, a turn. It's like the state tournament for all the middle schools. So it's not like it's like if we did away with this, they wouldn't have this big tournament that they get to compete in for wrestling. And you know, we couldn't just shut that off because it impacted so many people and it was a ton of work for us, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't so much that we couldn't handle it. So I think that's really good advice that you've got to know why you're doing what you're doing. And then I love the idea of bribing people to tell you what's wrong. I think that's really good because so many times they don't want to tell you what's wrong and they think they're going to get in trouble if they, if they do. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with Regard to Teacher Well-Being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Or they're just shy. You know, they don't want to come into your office because it's just a bit scary, you know? I mean, even if to say something nice, they don't come in, you know, <laughs> um, you, you, you've got to do whatever you can to keep your door open, you know? So you talked a little bit about vision and you're in the uh, fortunate position where you created the school. So you can define the vision from the very beginning and, and have been able to do that. What about a principal who has inherited a school? Um, how do they make the vision for that school their own? And that's something that principals all over the world struggle with. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to inspire people. You've got to win hearts and minds. And I always find that you'll do that by sorting out behavior. There's nothing a teacher loves more than children who will behave themselves and systems that will support them. Because the most frustrating thing about teaching is you've planned your lesson. You've got that photocopier working. You've been up till midnight doing that PowerPoint. And then, boom, you know, little Johnny goes, ah, I'm not listening to you. And there's no way of dealing with that. And it really is so frustrating. So the best way to win hearts and minds in the first place is to try and deal with behavior. The best way to deal with behavior is to deal with the small things. So in the same way that Giuliani turned around New York by sorting out the subway cars, the broken windows theory, you know, houses and derelict house uh, has no broken window. It will stay like that for months. If, on the other hand, you break one window, within days, all of the windows will be broken. And so that broken windows theory of dealing with the sweat, small stuff, you've got to do that with your behavior. And you need consistency throughout your school where all your teachers are using the same system. And then you make sure that they implement it. And you can reward your teachers. I mean, I've done things, you know, in old schools of mine, which I've turned around, they've been difficult with typical behavior and they made it good. You know, you hand out a Kit Kat to the person who's used the system the most, or you, you just reward them with silly things. And then everybody starts competing to get better at it and better at it. And because you're bringing more and more consistency across your school, uh, the children start reacting to it because they begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, if I do X, Y is going to happen. The reason why they did X all the time before was because they could get away with it. If you stop them getting away with it, they'll stop doing it. And then the behavior actually changes. And you will see six weeks, you will see your school transform if you do that. And then you've got your teachers on, on side. 
And then you can start working on the teaching and learning to try and make it more traditional. Uh, in the end, teachers prefer more, more traditional teaching because frankly, it's easier. <laughs> it's, it's easier to teach more traditionally because you're not having to pretend that children are learning when they're not because that's what a progressive classroom, you're pretending that they're making progress when they're not. And you're bringing all of the children together at once and pushing them forward. So, you know, teachers like to talk at the front of the class and explain stuff. And then you can do a class discussion. You do a bit of pair work for a minute. You do a bit of written work. You bring them back at the end. You say, let's check what we learned. You know, it's pretty simple. Yeah, I say it's simple. I mean, it is simple, but it's really hard to achieve, you know, <laughs> um, especially under the culture of 2020, which stands very much against those ideas. Yeah. So you... uh you you talked about this idea of of getting the behavior to change first the student behavior that is something that i have definitely seen the opposite of that when i was unsuccessful as a principal is because i didn't get that behavior and the teachers started losing their minds and thinking that the school was falling apart because that wasn't the first thing so i think that's really a key point that we need to pay attention to, you know, and so I appreciate you saying that. So the the other piece, of, you talked about progressive, and you say in the book, uh, Michaela, The Power of Culture, that small c conservative is what your staff believes in. So can you tell us what that means to you so that we're clear that it's not, you know, something that we're not in line with? So explain that. So stuff like belief in personal responsibility, but if you don't bring your homework in, it's your fault. You know, you you are in charge of yourself. And this business of children being able to say, yeah, but, you know, I'm poor or I'm black or I live on an estate or, you know, I have to have a long way journey to school. It doesn't matter. I mean, you need to do your homework. And the thing is, is that pe teachers who are privileged will often think, oh, they feel bad about holding children to account uh, who come from less privileged, privileged backgrounds because they feel that it's unfair. But I'll tell you what's unfair, spending your life illiterate, you know, <laughs> spending your life enumerate. That's unfair. And that's frustrating. <laughs> you get making sure that child does his homework. That's his one way of getting out of the inner city. You know, that's the only way he's going to change his life. So you do your job, teacher, and stop feeling bad about your own privilege and do what's right for the children. So that, I would say, is uh, is 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 a key point, really, in terms of uh, personal responsibility. He is responsible for himself. Other values that we have, duty to the community, so duty to your family. You're not just doing things for yourself, me, 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 me. It's um, which 2020 is very much about me, me, me. Uh, a small conservative viewpoint is, no, I'm going to give. I'm going to give of myself to others so that others might be able to achieve where perhaps I have not been able to achieve. And to think to your community and how you can give back that you're not just thinking I'm doing this all for me. So on the one hand, there's personal responsibility. I can do this. I'm going to, I'm in charge of myself, but I've also got a duty um, and an obligation to look after others. So that is one. I would say, you know, dressing well, having a sense of decency about you and how you behave and how you walk and how you talk and, and how you dress and so on. All the children wear a uniform here. They all have to have the ties to the top. All of the teachers dress nicely. Uh, having pride in yourself and having it pride in yourself for the right kinds of reasons, not spending all of our assembly time talking about how life is going to be really hard. You know, there may very well be racism and sexism in the world. I'm not saying there isn't, but if you spend all your time complaining about it, 
you're never going to get anywhere. You've got to behave as if it doesn't exist, or at the very least, behave as if you can overcome it, you know? And and I find that there's far too much negativity through a more progressive, you know, viewpoint where they're just talking about how life is really awful for my kids. And, you know, the fact is it is awful in some ways. It's also, they're also really lucky. They live in Britain. You know, the fact is they're in a free country where it's a democracy and they get free education and free healthcare and all sorts of amazing things. So, you know, the fact is um, we need to be grateful. So that's one of the things we do here is we teach the children to be grateful for what they've got, however little you have. And some of our kids really don't have very much. They don't. Uh, this is a typical inner city school with the same typical inner city problems that your inner cities have. You know, I tell you the biggest problem that children have in the inner city is that they see themselves as victims. And that's because the media tells them that they're victims and their teachers tell them that they're victims. And if you feel that the establishment is against you and that no matter what you do, you will fail, you'll never try. Okay. And so what I find is too many teachers pull the rug out from these kids long before the kid has even been able to try. And the teacher doesn't mean to. The teacher just feels bad for their own privilege. But I tell the teacher, get over yourself and keep your standards high for these kids. Because if you keep your standards here, they'll rise to them. If your standards are there, they'll rise there. Children do what we expect of them. You know, that's what they do. So we need to expect a lot. Yeah, I think that that is is really powerful. Have you heard of this book that I just happen to have next to me called The Courage to be Disliked? No, but it sounds like the kind of book I would like. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would. So in the opening chapter in this book, it states that trauma does not exist. And I've done training on trauma-informed practices and and talked to schools about how to deal with those kinds of things. But the reality is, is that so much of the training does exactly what you say, which is it says, basically, you need to feel sorry for these kids. Nobody comes right out and says that, but that's essentially what they mean. And we've all heard examples of people who have overcome tremendous obstacles to become great. That's the kind of message we need to be sending to our kids. You can overcome whatever this thing is that you're facing. You can overcome it because you have that within yourself. Most most schools, I think, don't do that. They try to say, we'll make up the difference for you, which that's never going that's never going to be enough. Because as you said, whatever the difference is, they'll rise only to the level of their expectations. And I think that that is really, really important. So I I do want to ask you about the criticism that you have faced. You've been through a lot. And in opening the school, you had even death threats, which is just crazy. Um, People protesting you opening it. And uh, to be clear, for, for those who who may not understand how the systems work, a free school, which is what Michaela Community School is, is um, basically like a charter school here in the States. And so you're a little bit different, but you're operated with public funds. And so you have more autonomy than than most schools do. And like here in the States, some people really don't like that because you can get away with things that they think they would never be able to get away with, which they actually could get away with if they would just do it, right? <laughs> At least that's my perspective. That's absolutely the case. I mean, the big thing, of course, is that our free schools only started in 2010, whereas your free schools, you know, it's back from the early 90s that you started. So America's far more used to charter schools now. Because we were one of the first free schools to open, we got a barrage of hate because we were still in that process of change. I have to say free schools that are opening now have a much easier time because the country is getting more used to them. But um, they are similar to charter schools. Uh, The fact is, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs completely in America, but certainly here, 
a free school is just like any other school. I mean, our admissions is running the same way. I mean, your admissions is different in America because you've got a lottery for the charter schools and you've got something different for the public schools, I think, don't you? Whereas here, our admissions is run by the same council as as runs the other schools. Like, there's no difference. Our money, everything, it's all exactly the same. The, the key difference, I'd say, though, is that we set up brand new and I was then able to gather together like-minded professionals to deliver a certain vision. You mentioned it before. The difficulty is that if you're in a school that's already established, how do you make, how do you change things? And, and that is, is, is a hard, well, it's, it's, well I'd, I'd say it's harder, but it's certainly something different that you're doing. And, um, and so people can be resentful of that because we've had the advantage of starting new. But uh, I think people hate free schools because they're scared of them and they're, it's a political football that they don't like, you know. But ultimately, what I used to say, gosh, you know, you'd think that we were building nuclear arms. You know, we're just trying to set up a school in an area of poor, with poor kids to help them. I mean, why would anybody want to stop us? But they did. They tried really hard. And uh, I have to say nowadays people are more silent on this matter. They tend to just leave us alone. And I think it's because they've essentially lost the argument because we have come out, you know, the inspector that comes around has said that we're brilliant. The two years ago when we had our first set of GCSE results, they were the fifth best results in the whole country. You know, it, it's difficult to argue that we are somehow letting these kids down. Not only that, but because we get 600 visitors or so per year, uh, visiting us, mainly teachers, often from Britain, but from elsewhere too. People have written lots of blogs about us. They've written articles about us. And so much has been positive, um, like 99% of it. And those who aren't positive, there's always an ideological slant to it. You know, It's not that they come and they say the children are unhappy. Everyone finds the children joyful. The place is so wonderful. The children are learning. But the ones who might not like it sort of say, well, yeah, but I still don't like that silence. It, you know, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, my position is, well, if the alternative is having your head bashed into a wall, well, why wouldn't you go with the silence? You know, I mean, it's not like I have some weird whim. It's not like I have some weird fantasy of silence. You know, I'm just doing it because it works. You know, I, I, I've worked in the inner city all my life. I know what works. I know what doesn't. And of course, we're learning all the time as well. You know, as I say, I made a change on something just the other day, a new member of staff. He's just joined this September. He said something that made me go, hmm, yeah, you're right, actually. Why do we do that? You know, that's what's so fascinating. It's such a great job because no day, no two days are the same. You're never watching the clock. Kids are great. Staff are great. You know, I love it. I love my life. Yeah. So you, you've dealt with that criticism and those challenges. How do you personally keep going? How do you stay motivated to still do the work and not just give up and leave? As you mentioned, an early staff member did in the school. How do you, how do you personally keep going when it's, when it's difficult like that? Well, I just, I remember what I'm in it for, you know, I'm in it for the kids. I'm in it to change the world. I think every teacher joins the teaching profession because they want to change the world. All of them do, you know? And then uh, what happens is they come up against you know, they come up against a wall, uh, a wall of bad behavior, of terrible bureaucracy, of management who won't listen, of kids who are rude. You know, they, 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 they're up until midnight planning things and then it goes, it blows up in their face the next day. And they just think, why am I doing this? You know? And so, yes, people do leave. Certainly at the beginning of their careers, a third of teachers leave in their first year, you know? So uh, you got to remember what you're doing it for. I mean, and you got to love kids. You do have to love kids. If you don't love kids, 
just today I was sat in my office. I was looking out the window of my office door and there was a little year seven boy who was stood outside. He was waiting to get into the library and my deputy was in here and I was saying, I said, come here, come here, come here. Said, look at this kid. Look at this kid, you know? And we looked and he said, oh, he's so small. I said, look at him. He's so cute. <laughs> and, um, and we were both going, oh, is he cute? Is he cute? Now, the thing is, he didn't know we were saying this because he was looking the other way. But um, you got to love him, you know? And if you love him, you love coming into school every day, you know? You love changing their lives. You love giving them a chance. And then we've got our older kids. I just did assembly for our year 13s upstairs. So they're going off to university next year. And I've just been reading their references. And I was telling them what a delight it is to read these references because they've just achieved so much. And they're our first cohort. So when we opened in 2014, we had them when they were in year seven. And I was talking about an assembly that I gave them in year seven and they were all laughing. And then I said, right, yeah, well, now you're in year 13 and this is now seven years later. And what a joy and what a privilege it is to be able to shape the minds of young people and then to send them off to the best universities. You know, like, why wouldn't I love my life? I don't need to tell myself this every day. You know, you wake up every morning and you just get excited about it. But you got to see purpose, right? You got to see, you got to see that what you're doing, and that's the point about always listening to staff and always being willing to change. Because if all you're doing is going in and stamping and doing the normal thing and signing, you know, principals always have to sign a lot of stuff. Sometimes I got a whole load of things to sign. And, you know, I make sure that somebody comes in for a meeting and then I'm talking to them and I'm just signing at the same time so I can kill two birds with one stone. You know, you don't want to spend your life signing. You know, you, you got to get out there and do stuff and change things. And every day I'm excited because I see what's happening in the school and I think, wow, I'm part of that, you know? So, you know, teaching and being a leader in a, te- in a world, in, in, in a school is the best job in the world. It really is. And it's just about seeing that. And just remembering all the all the good that you're doing, really. And that's what that's why I get up in the morning. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic, Catherine. So the last question I ask is, what is one thing that a principal, after all we've talked about, and there's been a lot, what's one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you? Yeah, well, I mean, I've spoken about a lot of things. You know, that book that you just pulled up, you know, what was it? Courage to be disliked or something? The Courage to be Disliked, yep. Yeah. And I said, I'd like that book. <laughs> Because you have got to have courage. In particular, you have to not mind being disliked. If you mind being disliked, you will make the wrong decisions about stuff. Uh, Because it will always be influenced. Your ideas will always be influenced by trying to keep people happy. You must never think, I have to keep people happy. You must always do what is right. And when you do what's right, sometimes you will upset people, but they will always respect you. You are not looking to be liked. You're looking to be respected, but you're not trying to do stuff to be respected either, okay? You do it because it's right. In the end, you will gain admiration and respect because of that, but that's not why you're doing it in the first place. So that's what's key. Be, have the courage to be disliked, you know? You get used to it. <laughs> I, I am disliked the world over, right? Um, but, but then I saw that little boy standing outside my office today, and I don't care. You can dislike me as much as you like because I'm changing that boy's life. Yeah, that's that's very good. Um, once again, the book is, um, and Catherine is the editor of it, which I didn't mention before, but this book was written by your staff, Michaela, The Power of Culture, and you can get that anywhere in the show notes for this episode. That will be there as well. So, Catherine, I just want to say thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principles. Great to talk with you today. Good to talk to you too. Thanks for having me.
Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.